Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Uh, our guest today is Professor Sama Makdisi, who is a professor of history and Arab American Educational Foundation Chair uh, of Arab Studies at Rice University. Um, we're podcasting today from uh, a beautiful bench outside Yanikoy, uh, Istanbul. So if our listeners hear um, some ambient sounds in the background, uh, we're in this sort of idyllic, quiet neighborhood. So hopefully our listeners can enjoy that as well. Um, so uh, Usama is the author of um, many excellent books, uh, as our audience will probably know. Um, the first book is The Culture of Sectarianism. Community, History, and Violence in 19th Century Ottoman Lebanon. Um, He's also the author of Artillery of Heaven, American Missionaries in the Failed Conversion of the Middle East, um, and most recently, Faith Misplaced, The Broken Promises of U.S.-Arab Relations, 1820 to 2001. So, uh, Usama, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, and I should say, um, as, a, as a fellow historian of Lebanon and sort of the Ottoman periphery, it's very nice to be podcasting today from Istanbul, um, reminding us that, you know, the histories of these places we now think of as the Arab world, um, you know, not so long ago, were part of an Ottoman imperial system. And uh, we should keep that in mind. Absolutely. So I think today um, we'll get at some of those, uh, the questions of the relationships between Ottoman, um, the Ottoman world and the sort of post-Ottoman Middle East. Um, and obviously this question of sectarianism. And maybe we should start by saying, as, a, as I'm sure our listeners have already thought, that um, sectarianism is kind of a slippery term at this moment, right? It's, it's used for a wide variety of, uh, of things. It's used for sort of Saudi Arabia's proxy wars and foreign policy. It's, it's used to describe the, the everyday life of Lebanese politics. It's used to describe the sort of inflammatory rhetoric of the so-called Islamic State. So maybe we could just start out by, by asking you, you know, what, when you say sectarianism, what do you mean? And when did that term start to be used? Well, I think that's a very good question. Um, and I, I would say that the, the way I use the term sectarianism is, is to, um, in two ways. One is, of course, to denote the actions, the mobilizations um, that we would describe as sectarian mobilizations, sectarian actions, sectarian violence, and so on. And the other way, I think, just as important is to always bear in mind that sectarianism is also a discourse in the sense that it's an appellation, it's a description, it's a term that other people use to describe um, ideas, people, communities, and so on that they disagree with uh, or that they think are sectarian, and they give it the label sectarian. So it's not just an objective social reality, but it's also a description and a way of locating oneself in a world uh, as not sectarian. Right. So it's both um, it's both sort of a discursive tool Absolutely. and also a historical and contemporary um, system of thinking about politics. In a yes. Way. And that's exactly why it's 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 really sometimes difficult to 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 be precise uh, and to uh, to historicize sectarian events and to historicize a discourse about these sectarian events. Right. Right. And that's the challenge. I think that that every I think historian of the contemporary middle, not just historian, actually journalist, historian, political observer of the contemporary Middle East uh, faces, I think, honestly. Right. So um, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about when the term started to be used. Um, obviously, the English term sectarianism is translated in Arabic as al mm-hmm. You know, do those have different um, conceptual genealogies? Or when do we start talking about sectarianism as such? Well, I think the, the Arabic term al-ta'ifiyah is almost certainly, as far as I can tell, a 20th century, early 20th century development. And it's tied, uh, I'm almost certain, and I have to check this and verify this, but I'm almost certain it's tied to a translation of the French concept of confessionalism and the idea, if you want a confessional system, 
of politics. And this was, I think, um, the, 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 the debates around the Lebanese constitution in the 1920s was, I think, the, the crystallization of this term sectarianism uh, as opposed to a, a secular form of government. But the term, the term in the way we use the term sectarian to denote sectarian violence and so on, in the 19th century, the word would have been dini, for instance, uh, religious uh, fanaticism or sectar- we would again say sectarian fanaticism. And so what's interesting is to see how that term evolves from the 19th century into the 20th century uh, and how it, again, covers not just actions but also forms of governance. Right. Uh, and then forms of secular identification. Right. Yeah. Right. It becomes kind of the, the other um, exactly. for a Absolutely. so-called secular yeah. politics. Absolutely. So maybe then we could turn to this moment of the 19th century, right? And, and think about, you know, we've talked about sectarianism as a discourse, mm-hmm. um, as a way of naming uh, and, and now maybe we could talk about what it, you know, what it means in the 19th century as a form of politics. Um, is it a new form of politics uh, or of political identity um, in, the, in the Arab world? Uh, and, how, and how does this come about? Well, I think, I mean, again, we, we have to be more specific and talk about you know, which part of the, which Arab province you're talking about or we're talking about, which city, which period, and so on. I think, you know, so having, if, so if you could be more specific in terms of the, um, the, the, the particular location we're talking about, then right. it would be easier to give right. you a, a more specific answer. But I think if I have to generalize and, and say what does it mean in, in the 19th century, I think what happens in the 19th century that's different from what happens before is the, the, the politics of imperial humanitarianism. So European power is intervening allegedly on behalf of Christian, uh, especially Christian, and as well as Jewish populations in the Ottoman Empire in the name of humanitarianism, in the name of benevolence, in the name of civilization. Um, and that, that certainly is a change and a transformation, um, especially because that's accompanied by um, European imperialism, uh, missionary movements, uh, and so on. And that changes, I think, the context within which uh, communal relations had existed prior, uh, in the, in, before the 19th century. That's one aspect. The second aspect, of course, and I touched upon this recently, is, is the question of the, the ideological changes of the empire. So when the empire shifts from a system of formal discrimination, uh, legal and ideological, towards a system of non-discrimination, which was the mantra of the Tanzimat period, and then eventually to constitutional equality of citizens, irrespective of religious affiliation, that also gives, um, you know, changes the, the meaning and the, the nature of religious affiliation in politics. So we're talking about um, a, a group of different changes which all sort of take place at the same time. Absolutely. There's a transformation in um, kind of the language and the practice of Ottoman sovereignty. There's a change in relationships with Europe. Um, and, and there's a change of agency on the part of Ottoman subjects. Right. So there are new conceptions of subjectivity, Absolutely. new kinds of claims being made on the state. Um, Absolutely. And this changes the role that religion plays in politics. How? It changes it in two ways. It changes it in the sense that it, uh, on the one hand, it creates a, uh, you know, as I said, it creates, there are sectarian tensions as uh, what we would describe as sectarian tensions as different communities try to, to, uh, to uh, reposition themselves vis-a-vis uh, in terms of making claims on the Ottoman state on European powers, and at the same time, you also have the development of a discourse, uh, what I would call an ecumenical discourse, uh, that's to say a, um, uh, a politics and a rhetoric and a, a form of affili- political affiliation that tries to, uh, that, that some historians have referred to as civic Ottomanism, that tries to refer to the idea of, of, um, 
of Ottoman Brotherhood as well as others have referred to Ottoman Brotherhood. And so in that sense, you, you have the development, I would say, of a counter-sectarian or an allegedly anti-sectarian discourse. But, you know, at the same time as you have sectarian mobilizations, both right. are happening at the same time. Right. So that's really interesting. I mean, because what you propose here is that there are sort of two sides to the same coin, right? That on one hand, we have um, the change in role of the role of religious affiliation in politics, which we now call sectarianism. But on the other hand, we have um, what you're calling an ecumenism, right? Which um, emerges at the same time out of the same set of changes. So maybe you could just um, elaborate a little bit more on what, you know, what you mean when you say this sort of Arab ecumenism that develops in the late 19th century and, and why you choose this term as opposed to something like, um, you know, Michelle Campos has used brothers, brotherhood, civic Ottomanism, um, these kinds of terms. Yeah, I, I don't, I actually don't, I don't, uh, I think Michelle Campos is, I mean, I don't disagree with Michelle uh, at all. I think that's, she's exactly right. There is a form of civic Ottomanism. Mm-hmm. There is an Ottoman brotherhood. The reason I use the term ecumenism is, is again, to emphasize the, the fact that religious affiliation was always uh, uh, a public affiliate. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't. Religion was not privatized, uh, as far as I can tell, in in the nineteenth century, Ottoman Empire. Um, and in fact, it wasn't. It has not been privatized in the twentieth century Arab world either, post-Ottoman Arab world either. And so, religion always and religious affiliation and religious discourse played an extremely important role in cohering a sense of what Michel would call Ottoman Brotherhood, the notion of religion as a refined, polite, civilized, civilizing. Uh, form uh, um, um, a force to cohere the notion of Ottoman Brotherhood was extremely important. So, uh, for you know, obviously, in in the Arab Levant at this moment, you have um, you know Muslims and Christians and Jews all um, participating in this shared discourse of ecumenism or um, civic Ottomanism or brotherhood. Uh, does religion play the same role um, and mean the same thing to all of these communities? Well, I, I think religion can play the same role, and I think Muslim religious elites, Christian, uh, Christian, uh, Arab Christians, um, uh, Jewish intellectuals, and religious community figures. Um, uh, journalists and so on, I think all try to use religion in the same way and they try to come up with this this new idea of religion as a civilizing force and as a justification for equal citizenship, which is again why the term ecumenism I think is, you know, is useful for me at least at this point in my thinking about this. Right. So um, I'm really interested in this term ecumenism um, because it seems to me that what you're describing is ecumenism. Others have described as um, the emergence of a, of a sort of secularism um, or what we now call secularism in the Arab world. The idea that you can share um, sort of the public duties and responsibilities of citizenship um, and meanwhile maintain separate religious beliefs or religious traditions. Right. So um, I'm curious, you know, how you came to choose this term and what, what is its relationship to the secular you know, that's a very good question, and uh, I'm not going to give you a satisfactory answer because I'm still working through the, the term itself uh, and thinking about why I'm using that term, uh, but, but here, are the, here are some preliminary answers. Um, one is why the, term as, why the term ecumenical as opposed to secular. I think, as I said, because of the fact that religion was so important in framing and justifying and shaping and cohering and legitimating this notion of, of equal citizenship. That's one thing. Two, religion, the, the, the idea of a civilizing, polite, refined religion was extremely important in cohering this idea of what the sectarian was. That is to say, 
the the allegedly irreligious or the anti-religious or the indisciplined um, movements of the so-called ignorant uh, people um, who who were abusing what religion allegedly stood for. Um, three, it's unlike secular. The term secular, of course, suggests the separation of church and state, which was not the case um, in in the Ottoman Empire formally. Right. Uh, and nor was it the case in terms of personal status regimes, which are being codified at this exact moment. Right. And so again, the term secular suggests one thing, and of course, I understand why people use it. We use it to say that this is we're moving away from us uh, from an Islamic imperial system towards a uh, an empire of citizens in theory. Uh, and and I understand, of course, why why we use it, why I've used it in the past. But I think ecumenical is, um, in a sense, it seems to be more accurate, and, and brings in that that sense of uh, pluralism and at the same time difference. And the the sort of uh, that it's not about the absence or the um, the removal of religion from public life. That actually religion remains critical to defining um, a shared public life among yes, um, uh, various groups living in the Ottoman Empire. Absolutely, and not just that. And of course, that that then creates problems, um, inherent problems in in this sort of ecumenical culture. That I think um, you know sort of taboos and. and um, contradictions uh, because in the end of the day of course we're, we're not talking about a secular state um, neither in the Ottoman late Ottoman Empire nor in the post-Ottoman um, Arab world these are not uh, secular states as such in, in the sense of, a, of an absolute separation of church and state and so um, what, what we have or, or religion and state um, there, there's always slippage there's always contradiction there's always tension but nevertheless there's also this this movement to uh, try to cohere religion as a mobilizing force for citizenship. And as I said, it has its drawbacks because the drawback is basically that you open up the space and you legitimate the space for those who have a very different idea of what religion should mean and what Islam is and what Christianity means and what Judaism means and right. so on. Right. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I mean, obviously, um, you know, people like Talal Assad have pointed out that um, one of the problems with thinking about the secular uh, in the non-West, in the Arab world, is that um, you know, in his view, secularism has a has a very Christian genealogy. The concept itself, not just the term, emerges out of um, you know a European history of religious um, war, basically. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to me that you that you've selected another term, which to my ears also has quite a Christian genealogy. But perhaps um, you know this is a moment where uh, a concept which is not indigenous to the region or to a language actually names. Um, in a recognizable way, a, a phenomenon which has otherwise been kind of um, hard to grapple with. Yeah, I, w I would say, of course, to that, I would say that Christianity, of course, is indigenous to the region. Right. And I would say Arab right. Christians, you know, have played a, a, a major role uh, and, a, of course, a well-recognized role in the elaboration of the Nahda of the 19th century, uh, the Renaissance of the 19th century, uh, with all, again, with all the contradictions and caveats that we want to put into that term, um, nevertheless, I think it, it's not right to think of um, you know Christianity and Christians as somehow not indigenous, uh, and to think of the Middle East or the Ottoman Empire only in terms of Islamic right. uh, discourse or Islamic rhetoric, because I think that misses one of the most interesting and fascinating, and I think important aspects of the 19th century and of course 20th century, which is this movement on on the part of Muslims, Christians, and to it to a certain extent, uh, and for a while at least, uh, Jews. Uh, this is Michelle Campos's work, uh, among other people's work, right. that that really pushed uh, the the boundaries of what it meant to be equal citizens, and and the, we're talking about a pluralist space, right. with tensions, with contradictions, with a difference, of course, between the Balkans, 
uh, Anatolia, Istanbul, uh, and and the Levant. Right. Right. So um, maybe we could turn then to, you know, the example of Ottoman Lebanon, since this is something that, you know, the culture of sectarianism was um, a very sort of particular story of the conditions uh, under which in the 19th century, a certain kind of sectarian politics and possibly also an ecumenical politics emerged in Mount Lebanon um, in and around what's now Beirut. Right. So um, I'm curious, you know, how how does the Beirut case project outwards to the rest of the empire? Is this something that, um, you know, you see similar processes going on? Uh, or is this actually kind of a particular case, a particular moment? Well, uh, both, of course. I mean, the historians are going to say both. But the uh, case of Ottoman Lebanon is both uh, specific and at the same time we can generalize from its experience because the uh, the sectarian administration that was put in place in Mount Lebanon after the 1860 massacres did become and was a, a a paradigm for a form of sectarian governance. This kind of idea again that 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 to ensure non-discrimination and to to exemplify the Tanzimat and to exemplify European intervention on behalf of communities in the Ottoman Empire, they would create this this sort of system of checks and balances that was uh, uh, that was organized along confessional or what we would say sectarian lines, and that system or that model is put in place in other parts of the empire. Uh, and of course, eventually is repudiated completely by the CUP and by nationalist uh, governments, uh, especially uh, uh, in the Balkans and other parts of, uh, and of course, the CUP government itself. Right. Um, and of course, you know, with the exception of Mount Lebanon, which still retains uh, a confessional political system. Lebanon does, the state of Lebanon. Right. Yeah, the state of Lebanon, of course, con- retains a confessional system. Um, the difference, of course, is in the Ottoman case, um, the, the confessional system was only at a very local level. And then it was meant to be sort of, it, there was a superstructure, let's just say the Ottoman state itself right. uh, at the top, which was not, of course, uh, there was no sectarian governance at the very highest levels right. of, of Ottoman governance. So I guess, I mean, I guess the question I'm asking is, you know, your, your first book was um, a very particular study of the emergence of sectarian politics in Mount Lebanon. Um, how, how does this new book sort of uh, perhaps reframe or extend um, that work? And, you know, are, are you rethinking any of the things that you argued in that book? Or are you, are you trying to sort of see how they echo in the empire more broadly? Both. Uh, I think I, I certainly have rethought a lot about what I, what I wrote uh, over 20 years ago at this point. Mark of a good historian. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the mark of any historian yes. who thinks, I <laughs> yeah. think, is is more like it. But uh, I think um, the first book was was you know it was very narrowly, as you know, narrowly focused on Mount Lebanon and on the experience uh, of the Maronites and the Druze um, in in this moment uh, of really between 1840 and 1860. And um, I, I realized that that to talk about sectarianism in the modern Middle East as a problem. You know, I have to sort of bring in the Balkans, which I hadn't done in my first book, which I didn't do in my first book. Uh, talk about the experience of Greece. Talk about the experience of Bulgaria. Um, think about uh, the sectarian problem in a wider frame than just Lebanon. And I think in my first book, I was also reacting in part to um, my own experience, of course, growing up in Lebanon during a Lebanese civil war. And so the comparative frame, really, in a sense, was was was, was the I was starting, my point of departure in a sense of thinking about the problem of sectarianism was contemporary politics in Lebanon. Right, which of course remains, you know, as we said at the beginning, is often described as sectarian. Of course it is. And it's, it's, it's still an important case, but it's, um, but um, especially now, I mean, what's interesting about Lebanon is how the sectarian system in Lebanon 
was at first celebrated, uh, especially in political science terms, as a great achievement. And this whole notion of consociational democracy, Aaron Lippard and others who, who celebrated this as a great example of, of, uh, of a form of democratic governance, but along sectarian lines. And then, of course, the civil war came and this, this entire system seemed absurd. And yeah, so the Lebanese case, as I said, was, was, um, was considered a complete failure and a fiasco during the civil war of 1975 to 1990, with good reason, of course, because the system is, has got extraordinary problems. And then, lo and behold, look what's happening now in the Middle East as, as Iraq has imploded after the U.S. invasion and Syria is in the midst of civil war. Suddenly, people are now talking about the Lebanese case or the Lebanese scenario as uh, an important, and I think that's very short-sighted. Nevertheless, uh, that's where we are today. Right, and actually the, the sort of mode of sectarian governance um, that's in place in Lebanon has almost started to look good again um, as we see you know, Syria and Iraq kind of descend into... Um, into warfare. Yeah, but of course, I think that that is a um, that's a very um, um, misleading or jaundiced perspective in the sense that the the reason why Syria and Iraq are are in the trouble they're in is because of a geopolitical right. shift and because, of course, of the domestic political situations in those countries, the the repressive regimes, and then uh, the role of, of of the U.S. of of, uh, of other powers that have intervened incessantly right in in these countries. It's not so much. Right. whether there was or wasn't a sectarian system. And the problem, of course, with the sectarian system is that once you put it in place, it's very hard. Yes, to, as to, we see as uh, we see in Lebanon yeah, in the it's debate very hard over to, to, exactly. civil so, marriage, etc. Absolutely. Um, well, so maybe this is a good moment to, to close by, by saying, you know, you, you've, you've introduced to us this idea that um, the, the 19th century saw the rise of not only what we call sectarian politics, but also an Arab ecumenism, um, which... Well, not just an Arab ecumenism, but an ecumenism across the board, but it's most right. obvious to me in the Levant. Right, in the Arab yeah. case, yeah. Um, but perhaps also an Ottoman ecumenism, yeah. um, which are sort of two sides of the same coin. So, you know, we've talked a little bit um, about the sort of contemporary life of sectarian both as a way of naming and also as a political system as it still exists in modern Lebanon. Mm -hmm. um, maybe we could talk a little bit about the afterlife of this Arab or Ottoman ecumenism. You know, what, what happened to this in the 20th century? Um, is it still with us? It continued, of course. I mean, the, bo both, um, both aspects of, of, of the problem, um, the, the positive and negative, if, if we want to describe it in those terms, have continued and have been exacerbated in the 20th century. It's clear that to me, that Arab nationalism, for instance, uh, in its initial formulation, uh, and especially in its in its more ideal or idealized versions, certainly is a continuation and and can be seen as a, as a development that has its roots. Not necessarily; it's not an inevitability in the way the old way of thinking about nationalism had it, but but certainly intellectually, uh, culturally, it has its roots in this in this 19th century moment. Uh, and especially in its sort of extraordinary focus on anti-sectarianism. Because as I said, sectarianism is a 20th century term. Um, it's criminalized in, 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 in the 20th century in, in, in Lebanon, but also in other states. Um, it becomes the, the object of an extraordinary, as I said, anti-nationalist. It becomes a taboo in nationalist discourse. Right, for both nationalists and leftists, right? I mean, yeah, you know, obviously yeah, yeah, in the sort of la later half of the 19th, of the 20th century, you know, sectarianism was as bad of a word for leftists or communists or, um, you know, yeah. socialists, Arab socialists, as it was for nationalists, Correct. which is fascinating. I mean, so tribalism, sectarianism, feudalism, these are the great sort of problems. 
right. that were identified explicitly by the 1950s right. you know, in any number of Arab writings. Right. So in a way, I mean, even the sort of afterlife of sectarianism as an as a category and as a problem is tied up with the 20th century history of, of thought in the Middle East and the kinds of um, of ideas about, you know, roots to progress, shall we say, whether it's through a unified left or a unified nation um, that came to sort of rule the day. Yeah. And I think the other. Yeah. And, and the major somebody's banging away. But the other major sort of distinction is that in the 19th century, the idea of religious fanaticism was often an imperial discourse that was used to describe others. What happens in the 19th century, beginning in the 19th century, and then really coming to, to the fore in the 20th century, is the understanding of sectarianism also as a problem of self. And, and, and you know, that's why um, you see in, in the Arab world um, this obsessive concern with the idea of a war against sectarianism, tribalism, and so on. It's interesting because what that makes me think of is that sectarianism, sectarianism in a way operates as a language of power, right? That, you know, it's an, it's an Ottoman imperial discourse. Um, it's a way of talking about the backwards peripheries that need to be modernized and enlightened. Um, it's also a Western political discourse talking about the backwardsness of Arabs or the Middle East. And it's also a, a nationalist discourse um, talking about, you know, the, the sort of backwardsness or problematicness of, of populations that don't conform to um, a sort of nationalist ideal, right? Uh, absolutely correct. Uh, with, with the important uh, proviso, that uh, caveat, that when the Western imperial powers, past and present, talk about sectarianism in the Middle East, they're not just talking about backward peoples, they're talking about backward peoples somewhere else. Of course, and, always. And their interventions are, in the, the interventions are allegedly to save them or to reform them or to whatever, to discipline them, but in the end they walk away and it's not their problem. Right. Um, whereas for these nationalists, in the end they are, you're absolutely right, they're, they're questions of power, hierarchy, class, um, um, elitism, all these things are inherent in this, in this, in this uh, sort of identification of sectarianism as a problem, but at the same time there's also the sense that this is a problem as a set of self, and therefore it's a problem that is going to affect uh, and be with us, uh, f- you know, for as long as there is this idea of a nation. Right. Well, um, I want to say thank you again for coming on the podcast today. It's been a fascinating discussion. Um, we're, you know, sitting outside here as the, the neighborhood of Yenikoi wakes up. So uh, hopefully that hasn't been too disruptive for our listeners. Um, but, you know, this is obviously work, you know, both this con- current work, the new book, um, and also, you know, your past work on questions of sectarianism and, um, you know, both internal and external movers of change in the late Ottoman Empire uh, has continued salience, right? Not only for scholars who are trying to understand that moment, but also for anybody who's trying to understand not only the contemporary Middle East, but the way we talk about it. Absolutely. And also just to remind ourselves that the problems of the Middle East are not unique to the Middle East. These are problems that I think all societies with pluralism and diversity face and have faced. Right, which is um, you know a point that's often missed in uh, both scholarly and you know popular media discussions of uh, particularly things like quote unquote sectarianism in the uh, Middle East. Absolutely. So um, I just you know want to thank you again for thank for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. And uh, for our listeners who want to find out more, um, of which I suspect there will be many, uh, we will be putting a short bibliography up on the website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. We also really encourage you to join us on Facebook. We have um, over 20,000 followers, and um, we're hoping that, you know, this is a space where you can ask questions, post comments, um, and get in touch with fellow lovers of history, Lebanese, Ottoman, 
secular, ecumenical, uh, Christian, Islamic, whatever, whatever, um, whatever you will. Uh, so, so join us on the web, join us on Facebook. Um, and until next time, take care.